Welcome to Near East PolicyCast, episode 31 for October 17th, 2017. I'm Scott Rogers, online editor at the Washington Institute. On October 13th, President Trump announced a new Iran strategy, including decertifying the 2015 nuclear deal and asking for changes from Congress and from international partners. Does this mean the end of the nuclear deal? What comes next for the executive branch and for Congress? Can the administration bring our allies on board for a comprehensive push to counter the full range of Iran's destabilizing activities? We have the core of a strategy here. I think the administration wants to strengthen the JCPOA to correct what they see as its flaws while trying to remain within the deal. And I think they want to rally international partners to confront Iran's destabilizing behavior in the region uh, and nest the nuclear agreement within that kind of broader Iran policy. That was Michael Singh, a Washington Institute scholar and former senior official at the National Security Council. He joins us today to dig into the details of the Trump administration's new Iran policy, from the nuclear agreement to terrorism sanctions, and to explain how the White House can turn the broad outlines of strategy into successful policy that advances American interests. After this. This is Lori Plotkin-Bogart, Kay Family Fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. The Washington Institute is dedicated to advancing a balanced and realistic understanding of American interests in the Middle East and promoting the policies to secure them. Find all of our research and analysis at WashingtonInstitute.org or follow us on Twitter at Wash Institute. We are speaking today with Michael Singh, Lane Swig Senior Fellow and Managing Director at the Washington Institute. He is a former senior director for Middle East Affairs at the National Security Council, and he joins us today to discuss the new U.S. strategy on Iran announced by President Trump on October 13 and the president's decertification of Iran's compliance with the 2015 nuclear deal. Mike, welcome to Near East PolicyCast. Thank you, Scott. We're recording this conversation on Monday morning following the president's Friday announcement of a new U.S.-Iran policy. The timing of the announcement seems to be driven by the confluence of two issues. In 2015, the United States, along with Britain, France, Germany, Russia, and China, reached an agreement with Iran to limit and inspect that country's nuclear program. The deal is known as the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, or JCPOA. In response to the JCPOA negotiations, Congress passed the Iran Nuclear Review Act, or INARA, which requires the president to certify Iranian compliance with the JCPOA every 90 days, as well as to certify that the JCPOA serves America's broad national interests. On Friday, President Trump announced that Iran was in violation of two specific terms of the JCPOA, as well as what he called the spirit of the deal, and that the JCPOA does not contribute to, quote, regional and international peace and security. Mike, first off, What does the president's announcement mean for the JCPOA and INARA? Is the Iran agreement still in effect? Is the United States still a party to the deal? Well, Scott, you know, the president's speech on Iran has had a lot of reverberations, and we've heard heated reactions uh, back and forth, both from uh, advocates and skeptics of the Iran nuclear agreement uh, or JCPOA. The irony, though, is that, in fact, nothing uh, is different today than it was on Friday. The JCPOA, the nuclear deal itself, has not changed. The United States is still party to the nuclear deal. uh, And according to Secretary of State Rex Tillerson, is going to try to remain party to the deal. The INARA uh, bill, that's the Iran Nuclear Agreement Review Act, passed before the deal even existed. And that that was the mechanism in 2015 uh, by which Congress was given the chance to vote on the deal still remains in effect uh, without any changes. So nothing has changed yet 
uh, what we heard from the president was uh, basically an outline of how he would like for things to change. And underlying it is uh, a, a pretty straightforward strategy, um, although, of course, the devil is going to be in the details. And that strategy really is, look, this administration clearly is uh, populated by people who are critics of the JCPOA. Uh, and President Trump was perhaps the most critical of all when it came to the nuclear deal. Uh, he's described it in uh, extreme terms as perhaps the worst deal ever, for example. Yet there's a nod to reality here that the JCPOA has been in effect now for uh, over a year, almost two years, in fact. It's got strong support from the rest of the world. And so the, the strategy really boils down to trying to strengthen or fix uh, what critics of the JCPOA see as its flaws while not actually exiting the deal if possible, as well as trying to expand the aperture of Iran policy so that we go from just having an Iran nuclear policy to having a broader Iran policy. Uh, in other words, addressing Iran's regional activities, which are highly destabilizing, uh, addressing Iran's support for terrorist groups like Hezbollah and Hamas, in addition to preventing Iran from getting a nuclear weapon. Do you see the Iran nuclear deal as, in and of itself, possibly an impediment to an effective broader strategy against Iranian misbehavior in the region, its uh, hegemonic actions, support for terrorism, support for proxies, uh, undermining of state institutions across the region? Or is there a way in which the JCPOA could be made a, a valuable component, a building block of that larger strategy? Well, this is sort of a, a matter of, a, of fraught history in a sense, Scott, because critics of the JCPOA uh, essentially believe that the Obama administration sort of subordinated all other U.S. policy goals with respect to Iran to the negotiation of this nuclear deal. One of the sort of familiar lines of criticism against President Obama is that he, for example, refrained from taking tougher action in Syria so as not to jeopardize his chance of getting a nuclear deal with Iran, or that he refrained from criticizing uh, the Iranian regime too heavily during the Green Revolution in 2009 so as not to jeopardize what were then uh, sort of the nascent uh, negotiations over the nuclear question. At the same time, during the Bush administration, there was basically a view that if there was going to be a sustainable solution to the nuclear problem, it would first require a strategic shift by the Iranians. Um, that, in fact, unless Iran changed its uh, overall sort of approach to foreign policy or the region, uh, that we wouldn't really be able to trust that it had uh, given up its nuclear weapons aspirations. The Obama administration, in a sense, turned that on its head uh, and saw the nuclear agreement as perhaps the first step uh, in achieving that strategic shift. I think their theory was that if you could diffuse that immediate crisis, that would buy you time and space to perhaps, if not reconcile with the Iranian regime, at least lower the temperature and work with the Iranian regime uh, in terms of negotiating on, on its other sort of troublesome behaviors. I, I think that there's no reason that a nuclear deal or nuclear agreement or any kind of nuclear compromise has to be incompatible with the U.S. challenging Iran's destabilizing regional activities. I do think, however, that the JCPOA, as it's structured, has made that harder because one thing that we did in um, agreeing to the JCPOA, to the Iran nuclear agreement, was give up our most powerful sanctions tools in exchange for fairly narrow concessions on the nuclear question by Iran. Now, advocates of the JCPOA would say, well, those sanctions were put in place because of the nuclear uh, program, and therefore it's appropriate to lift them uh, as part of a nuclear deal. Um, but critics of the JCPOA would say, well, 
by giving up those most powerful sanctions tools without a comprehensive agreement with Iran, uh, we have in fact now uh, limited our tools uh, to address those uh, Iranian that, for example, Iran's destabilizing regional behavior um, with the deal in place, um, which leaves you either to resort to less effective sanctions or even military instruments to counter those Iranian behaviors. So I think one of the objectives for the Trump administration will be to bring into alignment an effort to challenge Iran's nuclear ambitions uh, and challenge Iran's regional ambitions. Again, that will be difficult and uh, it will require some pretty deft diplomacy by this administration. Well, on that score, the president's announcement on Friday marked both the culmination of an internal review of Iran's strategy and an announcement of a new strategy to be pursued by the executive branch, but it also put some of the ball in Congress's court here. So between the White House, the national security uh, apparatus, the State Department, and Congress, what are some of the next steps that we should uh, be looking for in the next several weeks up to, I think it's uh, 60 days under Inara? Who's going to be taking what action and what opportunities are there for taking steps now that will actually move the ball forward on that more comprehensive strategy that, that can uh, make the, uh, the JCPOA a more productive part of the larger approach to Iran? Well, what President Trump said in his speech, uh, in a nutshell, was that he now wanted to work with allies to strengthen the JCPOA and work with Congress to amend the INARA bill, the Iran Nuclear Agreement Review Act. Um, so that's what I think we'll now see, is an effort uh, by the administration to engage in diplomacy uh, with our European allies on this question of strengthening the JCPOA. And again, there, the devil's in the details. It's not clear exactly what will be asking of the Europeans, nor is it clear exactly what their response will be. The European allies have been pretty clear that they're not open to renegotiating the JCPOA. However, if what we're talking about is not renegotiation, if what we're talking about is simply strengthening the enforcement of the JCPOA, and then maybe reaching agreement on how we can best address Iran's other behaviors, for example, again, it's destabilizing regional activities, which aren't covered by the JCPOA or its ballistic missile program, again, not covered by the JCPOA, that might be an area for some productive discussion. This, the second part of the Trump strategy is working with Congress to amend the INARA bill. Uh, and so I expect we'll see that as well. We'll see outreach by the administration to both Democrats and Republicans on the Hill. Now, amending INARA might involve a couple of different things. The first is, uh, as Senator Corker, who is the chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee in the Senate, has already uh, pointed out, trying to establish some sort of markers for what Congress could and couldn't accept in terms of Iranian behavior to the future. And those markers could be associated with the automatic reimposition of sanctions. If that jeopardizes or if it's seen to violate the JCPOA, it will be controversial not just with Iran and with America's allies, it'll be controversial with Democrats um, and others who are keen to preserve the JCPOA. So that part uh, will be difficult, but you could see Congress um, laying down markers on issues, for example, like Iran's uh, potential future development of ICBMs or intercontinental ballistic missiles, uh, or the dramatic expansion of Iran's nuclear program once the nuclear deal starts to expire beginning in about 2023. The second element that could be considered in an Inara amendment is this question of the 90-day certification, um, which is in fact what triggered uh, this uh, presidential speech in the first place, was that he had to, for the third time of his presidency, decide whether to certify or decertify 
certain conditions, certain questions about the Iran nuclear agreement. And in this case, unlike the first two times, chose to decertify. Well, I think a lot of folks on the Hill have come to the conclusion that these 90-day reviews uh, are perhaps not necessary, perhaps even counterproductive. Uh, and so changing the certification requirement may also be a part uh, of any ANARA amendment. Speaking not only in terms of Iran, but also dealing with our allies in either negotiating changes to the JCPO or, or, or as uh, was discussed uh, over the weekend by administration officials, creating uh, new agreements among the signatories, is is there a, a, a better just baseline approach that our negotiators could or should be taking with regard to what we're asking of our interlocutors? Well, I think the key, Scott, is that we have to bear in mind and our negotiators have to have at the fore of their minds, what are our objectives? What are we hoping to achieve here? That needs to be the starting question and not the tactics, not the kind of modalities, as diplomats like to say. Because as soon as you define our objective as reaching a deal with the Europeans, then you will start to ask, well, what is necessary to reach that deal? If instead you ask the question of, well, what is necessary to deter Iran, uh, either from obtaining a nuclear weapon or expanding its regional power and influence, that might lead you to a different set of responses. And you can evaluate any potential deal with the Europeans or with others uh, against that vital national security interest or objective. This is why I think it's very important in diplomacy, you avoid what, uh, what some call solutionism, where the kind of quest for a deal or the quest for an agreement or a diplomatic compromise starts to crowd out the question of trying to achieve your objectives. Now, oftentimes, the two things are totally compatible. And diplomacy, when done well, uh, does serve your national interest, does serve your ultimate objectives. Uh, but sometimes the quest for the negotiated agreement can overtake the question of your objectives. And that's where you get into dangerous territory. That's where you can end up with agreements that don't entirely serve your interests, even if they're the product of give and take and compromise. It is a difficult business. And again, this is going to require a deft hand uh, by the Trump administration. In terms of avoiding solutionism, is there a danger right now for Americans generally, as well as policymakers, to be too focused on the immediate responses from European capitals, as well as from our regional partners? Is, uh, is that something we should be looking above and beyond uh, regarding that as, as a, a, an immediate tactical uh, background rather than uh, truly, at this point, uh, a matter of strategic importance? Well, I, I do think there's a danger in being impatient or being rash here, Scott, because uh, first, um, if in fact the emphasis now for the administration will be on diplomacy with our allies um, and negotiations with Congress, both of those things will take time. Um, and I think it's important to remember, for example, in Congress, you're not going to get any successful legislation that can't win Democratic votes, because ultimately you need 60 votes in the Senate to get any kind of legislation through. Um, and so that will be a protracted negotiation, no doubt. The same is true of negotiations with allies. Obviously, the initial allied response to President Trump's speech was a skeptical response. But I think we won't really know what direction this is going to take until the follow-on diplomatic discussions have taken place in private. One of the real challenges for the Trump administration uh, will be aligning the private and public messaging so that they support one another uh, and both fit into an overall strategy rather than contradicting or confusing the diplomacy which is taking place behind the scenes. I mean, sort of given how much communication there is in this sort of era of social media, um, that will be a big challenge. And given President Trump's, obviously, activity on social media, that will be a big challenge as well. And so all the different parts of the administration 
are going to have to be pulling together in the same direction on this. And I think we won't really know whether the administration's strategy has a chance of success for some time. And obviously, if it ultimately isn't succeeding, um, then the administration will have to make some tough choices about the future of the Iran nuclear agreement. And the president has indicated his willingness to leave it. And I imagine that that's a threat that uh, many take seriously, uh, given that he's um, seeking to renegotiate other international agreements and, and has, in fact, left one major international agreement in the Paris Climate Accord. Um, so I think this will be playing out now over the next several months, if not more. The president announced a new national Iran strategy that had four key elements. The first was countering Tehran's regional destabilization and support for terrorist proxies. Second was imposing new sanctions to block Tehran's terror financing. Third was countering Tehran's missile and weapons proliferation. And fourth was denying Tehran all paths to nuclear weapons. Drawing on, on your extensive experience uh, at the National Security Council on the inside of policy formation and execution, What's the typical internal process within the executive branch that would precede a major presidential policy announcement? And how does the administration go about translating a strategy into practical policy actions across the whole breadth of the government? Well, Scott, it's important to remember, I think, why is it that we consider Iran such a challenge in the Middle East? Um, because it's, it's rarely stated explicitly, and uh, oftentimes people who see this kind of constant reference to Iran do wonder why why the concern. And there's really a couple of things at play here. First, when it comes to vital U.S. interests in the region, we typically list things like preventing the spread of weapons of mass destruction, uh, hence our opposition to Iran's nuclear weapons program. We often list things like freedom of navigation, freedom of shipping, free flow of energy uh, through the region's uh, maritime choke points. Well, as we see, Iranian uh, vessels often challenge the U.S. Navy uh, in the Persian Gulf. We see the Iranians shipping anti-ship cruise missiles to the Houthi militia in Yemen, which then has used them against both naval vessels and commercial vessels in the Bab el-Mandeb Strait. We talk about, for example, the vital U.S. national security interest in opposing or countering terrorism. Iran is a major supporter of terrorist groups. So you can see across the board, Iran threatens American interests in this region. When it comes to our strategy in the region, which flows from our interests and our objectives, our strategy is heavily based on trying to strengthen states and promote stability. We, where we've succeeded in some cases and we have in others, but that strategy has been one which has endured across administrations. And what we see from Iran right now is that not only are its actions in places like Syria, Iraq, Yemen, Lebanon, uh, the West Bank and Gaza and elsewhere destabilizing for the region. Uh, we could add the Persian Gulf and Afghanistan to that as well. But in a, in a sense, Iran's use of proxies, which are often or almost always sub-state actors and terrorist groups, also has the effect of helping to accelerate or contribute to the breakdown of the state system, the breakdown of individual states in the Middle East. If you look, for example, right now at the military action which is going on around Kirkuk, the confrontation between Iraqi forces and Kurdish Peshmerga forces, the IRGC, the uh, Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, is involved in that fight, as are some of its apparent uh, Shia militia proxies. And so we see these Iranian forces deployed around the region in ways which are, are certainly not promoting uh, political stability in these countries. This is why we consider Iran a challenge. Where I think administrations have differed is, well, how do we confront this challenge? What is our strategy for addressing the Iranian threat. 
for the Bush administration, obviously the context was quite different. We had a major military presence in Iraq, which was being actively challenged by Iran. So that was a major focus of our Iran policy. We had uh, no nuclear deal at that stage. Um, and so there was an effort, for example, not just to police Iran's adherence to some kind of nuclear agreement, but actually to press Iran to dismantle its potential nuclear weapons infrastructure. That obviously didn't succeed because ultimately the nuclear agreement, which was reached with Iran, um, allowed it to keep its sort of option to have a nuclear weapon by keeping its nuclear infrastructure. The Obama administration came at the Iran problem, obviously, from a very different angle. President Obama talked about uh, the need for our Arab Gulf allies, for example, to share the region with the Iranians. And he was clearly interested in moving the United States back uh, out of what he saw as sort of regional rivalries um, and trying to help uh, promote a sort of balance of power in the Middle East. I think that that strategy didn't really succeed either. And so it looks like the Trump administration uh, is trying, in a sense, to return to um, what they see as uh, something closer to the George W. Bush administration's approach to Iran by, again, expanding the aperture to focus not just on the nuclear question, which they believe uh, too, too much preoccupied the Obama administration, um, and focus on the full spectrum of threats posed by Iran. The challenge they have is they're doing this in a context where, number one, we have a nuclear agreement with Iran, which has um, been negotiated directly by the Obama administration and is uh, supported not just by our allies, but by most countries around the world. Uh, and they're trying to do it uh, in an environment where, frankly, they don't want to put much into the region in the way of military force, which makes it difficult to challenge the formidable presence of Iran on the ground in places like Syria and Iraq. And so I think the details of how exactly uh, all of this will be done, um, we have yet to see, uh, and it will be challenging. But there's a clear desire to, as I said, expand the aperture to go from just having an Iran nuclear policy to having an Iran policy. Are there ways in which the interplay between the executive and legislative branches now could lead to miscalculation or unintentional action that either escalates our conflict with Iran or weakens our leverage with relations with Tehran? Well, oftentimes you've seen uh, Congress and the executive branch play a sort of good cop, bad cop role. For example, when the Obama administration was negotiating a nuclear deal uh, with Iran, Congress was uh, imposing some of the toughest sanctions we've had against Iran. Um, and frankly, even though that wasn't coordinated strategy, it worked out effectively in a sense because the threat of sanctions was very real in part because it wasn't entirely uh, in the control of the administration. Now I think the administration's threat to walk away from the JCPOA if Congress does not amend the Inara legislation is going to be one which could complicate, frankly, their diplomacy with the Europeans and with others because it's not, frankly, entirely within the power of the administration to ensure that Congress does pass an Inara amendment. Uh, and so they've, they've taken that and they've essentially ceded, in a sense, some of the power to stay within the JCPOA uh, to Congress in theory. Uh, I think, frankly, there's ways to remedy this. I think that our continued adherence to the JCPOA should not really depend on congressional action. It should depend on the result of our diplomacy with the allies uh, and others. Uh, and frankly, there's much that the president can do through executive order um, that Congress might otherwise uh, do through legislation. And we've seen this practiced uh, not just by President Trump, but by Presidents Obama and Bush before him. Um, and so there will be this interplay. And I think it'll be important for the Trump administration to, to clarify for allies and others uh, exactly what their attitude is about uh, um, the future of congressional action and how that will impact the U.S. adherence to the JCPOA.
As a bottom line, in the next few weeks, say between now and mid-November, what actions, positive or negative, are you watching for from Congress, from our European and Middle Eastern partners, from Tehran, and even from the administration? Hopefully what we'll see in the next few days and weeks and months after the initial ferment over the president's policy rollout uh, dies down is the U.S. and our allies getting down to the business of diplomacy to try to strengthen the JCPOA and try to devise a united front, a united strategy for confronting Iranian threats in the region. And what we'll see from the administration and Congress uh, is some serious work on this new ANARA amendment that the administration has asked for uh, and that Senator Corker of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee has uh, put forward some ideas on. This is all going to require the administration to engage in some pretty deft diplomacy, both with allies and with the Hill. And it's going to require clear private and public messaging that reinforce one another if, in fact, our intentions are going to be clear and our messages are going to get through to those key audiences we need to reach. If the administration is successful, I think we could see actually a stronger Iran nuclear deal and allies who are united in confronting Iranian challenges in places like Syria, Iraq, and the broader Middle East. I think we need to hold out the hope that that's the outcome we get. And of course, the Washington Institute, as always, uh, will be trying to help the administration accomplish those goals and advance U.S. interests. Well, we'll have to leave it there for now. We've been speaking with Michael Singh, the Lane Swig Senior Fellow and Managing Director at the Washington Institute. You can follow him on Twitter at Michael Singh, D.C. That's Singh, S-I-N-G-H. Mike, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Scott. This has been Near East PolicyCast from the Washington Institute. For more research and analysis on the Middle East, find us online at WashingtonInstitute.org. Follow us on Twitter at Wash Institute and subscribe to us on YouTube at Washington Institute for events and video explainers. Music